0: Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech, or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer. I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing, and health economics. Already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P and N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare, based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations, and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Good. Good morning, Nina. Good morning to Toronto, I think, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's 9.30 in the morning here in Toronto. Thank you for having me on your show, Stefan.
0: Perfect. Good to have you. Very, And I think a very interesting kind of topic this time. I think normally we discuss more around, let's say, market access, reimbursement systems, the discussion around payers, etc. But I think today it's even a bit broader. It touches very much on all of those kind of aspects, but it's clearly broader. It's around pharma equity So... Nina, before we start with that, maybe you can introduce yourself as well before we then jump into the topic that we don't forget that.
1: Absolutely. So uh, I'm Nina Lathia. I'm a pharmacist and health economist. I worked for several years as a hospital pharmacist and then um, sort of rejigged my career uh, by going to graduate school, obtaining a master's and a Ph.D. in health economics. And um, in my career as a health economist, I've worked both in Canada and internationally at NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the U.K., And um, as a consultant, and as a consultant, I've worked, uh, done work for government agencies, I've done work for private payers, and I've done work for some uh, pharma companies.
0: So that's perfect. Perfect guest for our show. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So coming back and going back, I mean, I think it's probably also quite interesting because I think you have chosen pharmacoequity also as part of a quite recent paper, and you can maybe just as well speak to that very quickly. But I think when when having your kind of background with UK Nice, with the Canadian healthcare system from private side, but let's say from the different perspective, I think you have probably also chosen that topic quite nicely. But before we come to that. Could you quickly tell us what you define or how you would maybe define pharmacoequity? What is it finally?
1: Yeah, so pharmaceutical was a term coined by a U.S. researcher who's written a very nice paper that you referred to um, in JAMA two years ago. And this term um, really refers to ensuring that all individuals or all groups within a population have access to high quality medications that improve their health outcomes, regardless of characteristics such as race, ethnicity, uh, socioeconomic status or any other individual factors. And, you know, we, we know from existing data that there are disparities in access to, um, to medications. And, and, you know, I think the goal now really should be is how we achieve pharmaco equity on a population level
0: exactly I, I think that's very important because i think um when i first heard that terminology i was more thinking about let's say those kind of uh, uh um kind of differences between let's say regions for example that a products might be available in scotland but maybe not in england right so it's just by chance or the same in canada right maybe it might be available in one province <coughs> but not in the other that was the first thing what basically rang a bell with me but i think it's even broader right you just said it might be a lot of discussion we just have probably since a couple of years, right? Which is age, gender, social kind of generally this, the, let's say the kind of social environment, right? Where you're coming from, etc. So how could we tackle that really? Because I mean, ultimately it is really broad and it's nice, let's say from an academic perspective, but ultimately it really touches space for with every patient, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think what, what you touched on is, is absolutely one important com- uh, um, component of pharmaco equity, you know, differences between regions within a country or, or, or globally with respect to access to effective um, medications. But really, when we, when we kind of take a step back and we look at it, these inequities are sort of embedded in the system, all the way from drug development right up to an individual patient obtaining a prescription from. A pharmacy and I think in order to tackle this we need to look at sort of every, every point along this continuum um, and, and strategies for, for addressing these these inequities at every point so for example when we look at drug development we want to ensure that um, you know in, in the drug pipeline we are um, developing remedies for the vast array of diseases that individuals experience around the world right We don't just want to be developing specialty medications, um, you know, targeted um, at individuals living in what m- might be considered rich countries or high income countries. We also want to make sure that we are developing drugs for neglected tropical diseases that affect um, huge swaths of the population in the global South, right? Um, and moving on from there, we want to make sure that we make appropriate regulatory decisions and we integrate um, equity con- uh, considerations in, in into regulatory um, frameworks, right? And I think up until this point, Um, there hasn't been an appreciation as to how to systematically consider equity all along that continuum. And, you know, moving on from from the regulatory sphere into into HTA bodies and how they make decisions, um, individual prescribing decisions um, and access access by individual patients to these to these drugs, I think is important. And and I think there are steps we can take at, at, at every point along that continuum.
0: No, I, I, I fully agree. And uh, I think the other thing would maybe reminds me of, I think it's maybe a very special case, but it could maybe as well be something what could maybe as well be implemented in the different systems. I think when we think about orphan drugs, I mean, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there were no real incentives, also not for the pharmaceutical industry, right? To really invest there, even with very small patient population, right? If we see now those ATMPs with what is it, nine or 10 patients, maybe per country? I mean, no one can really say anymore that this is not attractive, right? Prices might be really high, right? But that's maybe on another aspect. I think we're probably even a step before that. And I think you said that, but an orphan drug is just more what maybe was an idea how to potentially create some incentives, how, or especially also on the regulatory side, right? Um, When we speak about drug development and you would think of, let's say, trying to, decrease, let's say, pharmaco inequality, right? Um, What would be, let's say, incentives or maybe steps you would think would make sense to also at least have that first step, right? From clinical trial into regulatory approval. How could we, let's say, make that a bit more, maybe call it fair?
1: Yeah, so I mean I think I, I think governments play a huge role in that in providing um incentives um in terms of you know funding development in terms of um regulatory decisions. I, I think there there are definitely um government incentives. I think maybe we need to look at the the issue from a global perspective too, ensuring that we, you know, globally, I mean, there's the issue of orphan drugs, there's the issue of, of um uh, diseases that may be more prevalent in the global south rather than in high income countries I, I definitely think there is um, there are financial incentives to be had or or or, or to be taken when um, when we um, when, when we try and create these incentives absolutely and I think then again when we kind of move to the regulatory steps, I think we're we're making some progress. We see with diversity as well in mm-hmm. these trials. I think that's the that, that's another component with respect to equity, right? Traditionally, there hasn't been a great deal of diversity in clinical trials. And, and I think that point has been underappreciated because many of the drugs that are developed are potentially useful in patient populations in which we haven't um, evaluated in clinical trials, right? Um, yeah. So, and I think there's a greater appreciation of that, Um the FDA has now recommended or or has now implemented um, diversity requirements for late stage clinical trials. So I think we are starting to realize that that we do need to do this. And beyond the regulatory framework, when we get into HTA decision-making, I mean, traditionally HTA was focused on population um, population health and maximizing population health, right? And there, there wasn't really a formal equity framework, but I think HTA bodies are now realizing it's not just about improving the health of the whole population, it's it's also about how that health is distributed between different groups within the population. And we know that there are, even in rich countries, there are health disparities based on socioeconomic status, as we discussed before, based on race, based on ethnicity. Um, and so HTA bodies are looking at formally incorporating equity considerations into their decisions through use of things like distributional cost-effectiveness analyses, which formally quantify equity and, and, um, and, and how those equity outcomes are distributed between different groups in populations. And, again, mm-hmm. I think that, that comes back to, to your point about orphan drugs, right, that you know, we, we have that group of patients who, you know, up until very recently um, haven't had specific therapies that were being developed for, for their conditions, right? Yeah, um,
0: yeah exa- I mean, exactly. I mean, I mean, orphan drugs is just one example, right? I mean, if we take, for example, pediatrics, right? I mean, if you have suddenly a pediatrics program, you also get a longer kind of, uh, let's say, time until your patent might expire from an industry perspective, which is also quite interesting incentive. So you might even think of, let's say, broaden that instead of just saying only pediatrics, you could even say it's more kind of diversity factor, right? So have you, let's say, done everything to really, let's say, implement a... a. um, a kind of, I don't know how how to say it, but it's probably more that the different kind of inequality measures have been at least being considered, right? It's difficult, right? Because as you said, it's different factors, right? Age is one thing which is maybe a bit more easy to implement. Um, Race maybe as well, even though that, you know, then it, it again depends where you have run your study, right? We know from Asia, for example, that they require a given percentage or proportion of patients in the trials needed to be basically Asian-based, right? Then if you don't have that, you need to have another follow-up study. So that could also be maybe some of the ideas, because if you don't do it, you maybe get the kind of request to run another study on those kind of diverse patient groups, which also costs a bit of money. So that could also be maybe an incentive, maybe easy to implement, I'm not sure, for the industry. Absolutely. I, I think I think that, you know,
1: depending, I, I suspect, on the specific drug in the specific trial, it, it may be um, easy to implement, it may be a little bit more difficult to implement, but I definitely think mandates and incentives of those kind are important in ensuring um, equity of access, right? And, you know, I think uh, part of, uh, an important part of pharmacal equity is ensuring access to drugs that, improve health benefits right and so we want to see evidence of improvement in health benefits in those particular groups right um so i think that i i think that is very important and i think these mandates are 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 an important step in ensuring that we have you know um fair representation of all individuals who may be candidates yeah. for a particular drug therapy right
0: yeah no no no. i fully agree um Maybe a kind of more critical question. I mean, I, I, I've quickly spoken uh, the last couple of days with um, a few payers uh, from Europe and uh, we're also speaking about the podcast generally, right? And I was telling you, look, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a quite different discussion we now have, right? On pharmacoequity. And then, you know, obviously the question came back, but what is it really? And we had a quick discussion and I think Two of them basically said, but is that not generally more the generalizability of RCTs into real life, so into the real world? What do you think about that? Is is it really only generalizability, or is it even more?
1: I think generalizability is is a huge component of it, right? Because I think it's just harkening back to our discussion about, you know, can we apply results from a certain patient group to real world clinical populations, right? And I think the answer up until now has generally been no, because there hasn't been a great deal of diversity in terms of um, inclusion criteria of clinical trials. So that's certainly an important component to it, but I think it goes well beyond that because even, you know, beyond a clinical trial, you know, we have equity of access and, you know, not just access to medications, but access to prescribers, um, you know, who, who prescribe these medications, right? And we know that there is referral bias. We know that racialized individuals, you know, are less likely to be referred to specialists who, um, you know, who prescribe novel therapies. And, and just, just on that point, we know that generally pharmacoequity it, it, pharmaco um you know, these inequities that we observe aren't just related to, to access to high-cost novel therapies. They're across the board, even, even access to low-cost generic therapies. Um, there are disparities um, between groups within a population. So there's, there's the issue of access to prescribers. And I think on that note, we also need to discuss... Discuss issues around you know culturally safe healthcare. Do certain Mm -hmm. groups have a legitimate mistrust of the healthcare system, Mm -hmm. and as a result of that, that they're not accessing the system and they're not um, receiving access to these therapies, right? And 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 what can we do about that? And so, um, you know, just an example of of addressing that was was a study done quite quite a number of years ago. Now, I think and written up in the New England Journal of Medicine on treating hypertension in Black men who disproportionately. Um, experienced that condition through a collaboration between pharma- pharmacists and barbershops in Los Angeles. So, I mean, that was another, you know, where they, they were more likely to take medication to address their hypertension. And they achieved excellent health outcomes with blood pressure reduction as a result of that program. So I think there's, there's that issue about, you know, access and uptake. And then there's the issue, um, particularly in in countries like the U.S. where there, there's private insurance, right? And in many cases, we have patients who could be uninsured or underinsured, in that their insurance um, plan expects them to bear a high uh, out-of-pocket cost for medications, and as a result of that, they choose to forego care sometimes. And I think that's um, you know that's another issue ensuring that you know we have population-wide access to fair low-cost insurance programs um, that don't incentivize so to speak um, you know um, foregoing health care right that that's one issue and and I think um, I think HTA bodies in countries that that have them um, I think also play an important role there in terms of price negotiation right ensuring that fair prices, you were paying fair prices for medications, right? Um, and and that comes back to an, another broader issue, which I think is um, overall sustainability of the healthcare system. You know, making sure that these drug budgets are sustainable, and we can continue to pay fair prices for drugs that improve um, the health of individuals within a particular population.
0: Yeah, no, no, fully agree. And I think and I think you mentioned a lot of really important things. I think maybe we even very quickly touch base again on the inequality and I think quite recent examples how it could work, right? Meaning access to drugs or access, let's say, to care in general, right? I mean, if we maybe look back um, to to the COVID-19 vaccination program in Canada, right? It was basically made that the care basically came to the people, right? Wherever those people were, in terms of language, social status, uh, generally where they were living, et cetera, right? It was all thought, how could we bring the vaccination to the persons, right? Which is totally different, I would say, to at least most of the times, this is probably, again, not only Canada, but I think across the world, where everybody's more thinking, okay, we have a drug, we're a physician, the patient will come or not, right? Which is a bit different. I, I like your idea very much from the US um, uh, with with the hypertension, but that's exactly one of the points. But the question is, how could we really, let's say, get that implemented, because ultimately, you also touch base on sustainability, right? If I would think about managing a budget, a healthcare budget, right, um, I would also not only need to think what I spend now, but I would at least need to think about firstly about the outcomes of patients, right? And secondly, how to even improve outcome, which might even, let's say, reduce costs Overall, in the long term or maybe in midterm even, right, and that was maybe also something what you have just said with your hypertension example, right? If hypertension is controlled, you ultimately have for sure significantly less kind of a budget impact in a way for whatever kind of complications it might arise from that right
1: oh, absolutely, absolutely I think we we need to take a long term view um you know, through the lens of equity, like, like what, you know, it's not just about the cost of the drug, right? It's about the long-term consequences of ensuring people have access to therapies, right? Um, Preventive therapies, novel therapies, low-cost generic therapies, whatever therapies they require to manage their conditions. And I really like your mention of the vaccination program in, in Canada. I think we had a lot of success with, um, with groups particularly with um indigenous groups kind of going to them and and designing programs um that were um that were aimed at increasing uptake and um increasing trust within the system and I think I think that was one of the um one of the very bright spots um for Canada at least in terms of vaccine uptake and and it wasn't I mean I think the most uh well-known example is, is within indigenous communities, but they were also, um, you know, religious groups that partnered with the government to administer, um, vaccines, um, you know, in, 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 in temples or, um, mosques, etc And, and that, that was absolutely a very successful program. And I think that really speaks to, um, you know the the core of really what pharmacal equity is, right? Like ensuring yeah. people who need these therapies get them, mm-hmm. um, and it it doesn't have to necessarily be in what would be considered a traditional healthcare set- setting, like a doctor's office or a hospital, exactly. or even a pharmacy.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. I fully agree. I fully agree. So I I, I think. Um, Ultimately, I think what this really shows is that there needs to be probably somehow a kind of political push, right, or a kind of monetary incentive by right? probably both of it, right? Because I guess for, let's say, with the example in the US, I think um, um, it was probably also a bit of a of a monetary incentive, right? I mean, if we can get those, let's say, patients being controlled, we might see in the long-term, less costs, right? Which maybe, I don't know what that was the kind of incentive or the kind of background, but I could at least think, think about that, right? I think the political push is probably more what we've seen with the COVID vaccination programs, right? In Canada, but also in other parts of the world. The other issue, I think, what maybe needs to be added in here, I mean, what you said as well, is access to physicians in general, right? Because I mean, we have quite high scarcity, obviously already with nurses, with physicians, with pharmacists, whatever you want to call it, right? So how could we solve that really in the future? I mean, overall, right? How could that's the inequality to pharmacotherapies or maybe to even broader to, let's say, care access be solved in midterm to long-term run? What, what might be an What you would and could think of?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I think that's a particularly salient question that's come to light with the COVID-19 pandemic, right? We've seen an increasing number of shortages of nurses, doctors, other frontline healthcare workers. Um, and it's not an easy problem to fix. But one bright spot that I will mention, um, and perhaps this is my bias as a pharmacist, um, <laughs> has been, um, you know, at the expanded scope of, of um, pharmacy practice, at least within Canada, we've seen, uh, I think, all of the province's all 10 provinces and, and the territories in Canada move towards expanding the scope to allowing pharmacists to prescribe certain medications for ambulatory conditions. Mm-hmm. In some cases, allowing pharmacists to become more involved in um, monitoring and following up of therapies through authorization for um, ordering lab values, making some therapeutic substitutions um, really um, sort of making pharmacists key players in, in an access point to primary care. I think mm-hmm. I think has been you know you know one of the positives to come out of that. Mm-hmm. I think you know recognizing coming back to your point that um healthcare doesn't always have to be delivered in what is a traditional healthcare setting, right? In in and you know establishing even community-based organizations that can deliver healthcare, you know, delivering healthcare um to children in schools. There have been some studies to show that that's that's been in um Excellent program to in, increase uptake. For example, of HPV vaccines, we know that when they're administered in school, we have higher uptake than when um, parents are required to attend appointments in traditional healthcare settings. So I think that we maybe need to think a little bit outside the box, and we need to think of you know the fact that um, you know healthcare is, is is not doesn't exist in a vacuum on its own, right? It's interconnected to other to other programs and into. Um, you know, other initiatives within a community. And I, I think that, um, you know, that that would be an excellent direction for us to move in. And I think, I think we're getting there. And I think um, what's important too is that we engage patients in helping them to understand how they can access healthcare.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, just, I fully agree, fully agree. I think um, it, it's really important. I think when, when you said, I think um, we need to think obviously outside the box. I think it's very important that, let's say healthcare is not just, let's say running in kind of fixed, kind of boxes in a way, right? I mean, it, it is broad. It's basically affecting everybody every day, right? Whenever we wake up or whenever we sleep, I mean, everything is related to health at the end of the day, right? So we should exactly. probably even have that a bit broader. I mean, we had... We had some discussions here, uh, at least in, in, in some uh, countries in, in, in Europe, um, for maybe call it practice on the go, right? Um, so private practices which are which might just jump, let's say, from one uh, location to another, to also and especially having maybe acts more for elderly, no more, let's say, that flexible to go maybe into the bigger cities than to their appointments or something like that. I mean, we have seen that this w- would work. You know, seen basically with the vaccination program, but it's it's still not implemented, right? It's just a small step, but I don't know. Maybe it's still the money which is missing, or maybe the political will. I think it's probably both the money, the
1: political will. I think there is still an underappreciation as to how important some of those mm. programs are, and I think um, you know, on a societal level, we need to implement systems to deal with this, right? Like we need, you know, I mean, that's an excellent idea of maybe, you know, sort of pop-up clinics or, or, you know, mobile clinics, but we've got to have um, I think a, a system wide approach so that mm. everybody who could benefit from that has access to it. Right. In in the same way we talk about equity um, to medications, right. You know, you know, we've got to have systems in place to ensure that everybody has yeah. access um, to the healthcare, be it medications or, or other healthcare services that they need, and I think um, I, I, I think that's the key.
0: I think we also,
1: I yeah. think I think you mentioned incentives. I think we also, in in some cases, need to address what might be described as misaligned incentives, right? Where we might have some, um, you, you know, perverse incentives that are causing us to behave in certain ways or not behave in certain ways um, that are affecting access. Uh, you know, access to to medications and other health services. So I think there's lots to think about there. Yeah.
0: No, absolutely agree. So final question for you. Uh, What would you tell if suddenly the Minister of Health, the Canadian Minister of Health would call you tomorrow and would just ask for your advice? You have maybe two minutes time and somebody was just recommending to speak to Nina and you have two minutes to tell the Minister of Health what to do, what you would basically do if you were him or her.
1: Um, so I, I would say, you know, just, just on, on the issue of equity, I, I would say um, put in uh, system-wide processes, implement some system-wide processes to address health inequities and start um, start early, start with children, start in school, start teaching children about health, start teaching children about where they can access health services, start teaching children about things they can do to stay healthy. And I would also say my second piece of advice is take a long-term view. You know, I think sometimes we're, we're all guilty of what could be described as short-termism. Take a long-term view. How does access to medications, how does access to health services benefit us 10, 20, 30 years down the line, not six months down the line, not, not what it's going to cost for the next six months, what it's going to cost for the next year. What are we going to achieve if we implement these programs, you know, a decade or two down the line? And I think that's... Um, that's very very important. Uh, that that that's key to um, making good decisions.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Nina. It was a great thank discussion. A lot of great insights and a lot of new, let's say, parts also to think of.
1: Yes, lots of lots of food for thought. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. So pharmacoequity this time is a slightly different kind of topic, but it's still very important when thinking about market access and reimbursement itself. I mean, people listening to the podcast might have already experienced in the past as well inequalities in access of drugs, for example, on a regional level. I mean, sometimes I personally had the experience that a drug we have been working on on a national level, for example, in Spain had um, access in some areas, for example, in the Barcelona area, but not in the south of Spain for nearly three years, right? So there was a three-year difference until also patients in the south of Spain had the same access to that specific drug than patients more in the north. I think people who might know as well the system, for example, in Italy would just say, yes, of course, I've experienced that similarly. And I have also mentioned already in the podcast discussion with Nina the experience uh, between Scotland and England. So that's just one component, but it's even broader what we have just heard, right? It's also, let's say, something which might be coming as well into effect from an HGH perspective. We've just heard as well that there is a so-called distributional cost-effectiveness analysis already, at least in the academic discussion, where people might just get as well the diversity into the cost-effectiveness analysis. And I think we have that already let's say, when we think and speak about the medical benefit assessment, for example, in France, in Germany, and in other parts of the world, when payers are speaking about generalizability. Generalizability of randomized controlled trials is also part, an important part and component of inequality of drug access. So a lot of further discussion which might come in there, I think especially within the years to come. We're now in 2023. We have a lot of discussions from a political perspective uh, when it comes to diversity, which I personally think is really important. And that is also where I personally believe as well that this will also get into the market access and reimbursement discussions rather sooner than later. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.